Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Good news to share from McMaster Children's Hospital. The latest on Sewage Gate 3.0, a dire warning about Canadians defaulting on their mortgages, taking the Ford government to task after it ripped up Hamilton's growth plan, and social media giants are being sued over mental health concerns. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. You've heard the term triple-demic. COVID, RSV, the flu. This winter, it's put a ton of pressure on pediatric hospitals across the province, including really across the country, and including here at McMaster Children's Hospital. It's created issues with overcapacity, you know, upwards of 140, 150% overcapacity. It's added to staff burnout. We know that for frontline healthcare workers, it has been a challenge. How has this winter been progressing at MacKids? Well, let's ask uh, one of the people in charge there. Bruce Squires is the president of McMaster Children's Hospital and the VP of Women's and Children's Health at Hamilton Health Sciences. Bruce, good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning, Rick. Uh, Happy New Year. It's uh, it's really great to talk to you. Happy New Year to you as well. How are things going at Mac Kids? Is the situation improving? Well, you know, uh, I'm I'm glad to say, Rick, that uh, in some some significant ways, we have seen improvement in the situation here at McMaster Children's. Really, over the last couple of weeks, our uh, our emergency department uh, visit volumes are are back to more seasonal levels, and even maybe a little bit um, uh, lower. That means that uh, the children and and family um, families aren't having to wait as long in our emergency department, and our inpatient wards are a little bit less crowded than they were for most of the fall. And again, that means that fewer admitted patients in uh, in the emergency department are having to wait there for a bed to open up on our floors. I will say that uh, our uh, pediatric intensive care units, our ICU beds, are are still well over 100% um, uh, occupancy, and that's that's still true across the province. Um, but even in there, we've we've seen a little bit of an improvement from. Uh, the numbers that uh, we were experiencing for most of the fall and and uh, when we we go to look for a bed in the province for a critically ill child, there's a little bit uh, less scrambling uh, there than there was. So I can say that you know here at the hospital um, this week and early in the year, uh, things are better uh, than they were. but I'll I'll also say, Rick, that, uh, um, you know, school is just back this week uh, following the holidays. So we're not sure whether we're going to see um, a uh, another uh, more typical winter viral uh, surge in January and February. And so so certainly concerns uh, we're you know on alert for whether those um, those uh, those those volumes we saw in, the fall will uh, will reappear, if I can phrase it that way, um, for the rest of the winter. And then, you know, the really, really big focus, um, and uh, you highlighted it in your intro, is we have so many kids who have had their surgeries, their their procedures, their initial assessments, which have been um, postponed over the past six months, and of course, for which they were often waiting um, very long, well in advance, even of the pandemic, and 
And we need to get back uh, to those uh, those procedures, those surgeries, those investigations um, as quickly as we can. And are you confident that those scheduled appointments that have been postponed will be uh, brought back within the next few months? Or is it going to take a while to make sure all those people who need attention get the attention they need? Yeah, we're going to do our very best to bring those uh, those kids in to get the care they need as uh, quickly as possible. This week, we've um, we've we've ramped back up some of our our surgical activity that requires an admission to the hospital. But but even there, Rick, we've only been able to ramp up to uh, to sort of sixty six percent of our, uh, our our usual activity uh, pre pandemic, and that's that's constrained by the fact that yes, the hospital is still busy, uh, but also as you mentioned, there are healthcare shortages. Uh, healthcare worker shortages that impact us, uh, impact uh, really all all, uh, all children's hospitals and much of the entire system. And you know the the the, the truth is that the, the healthcare system for children and youth in Ontario and really across Canada has been undersized. Uh, we've been lacking the investment to match the the growth in the population and the increased sophistication and care that 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 some kids require and so to 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 get at large numbers of uh of kids that are on 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 wait lists and have been waiting too long um, is not an easy thing to do we need uh we need investment over time and we need uh focused activity so um you know that's a big part of of uh, of the message that I think I've been been sharing as I've talked to you previously, and I want to continue to share it. That uh, while we've gotten through this this pressure point for the for the moment, um, we continue to to operate in a very very tight system, which makes it um, difficult when we have uh, such extreme pressures as that triple demic, uh, but it also makes it really difficult to get at backlogs. Bruce, we only have about 30 seconds. This must be, you know, the, the encouraging news that you're sharing today must be a sigh of relief. Well, it, again, you know, you know, Rick, it does, it does feel good it, that I think for our, for our teams, they've worked so, so very hard. Um, but I can't, I can't really, um, I don't want to overstate that uh, that sense of of uh, of of a, a bit of a catching of the breath because again they are so focused on the children, uh, youth, and families that they serve, and they know that so many of them are uh, are, are still waiting for the care that they need. That's great news, Bruce. Thank you very much for your time today. Best of luck in getting these numbers back to uh, normal, as you have explained, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Oh, thanks very much, Rick. Have a great day. You too. That's Bruce Squires, President McMaster Children's Hospital and the VP of the Women's and Children's Health and Hamilton Health Sciences. As you heard, capacity still at about 100%, which is way better than it was before. Wait times cut down, ER visits back to seasonal levels, uh, or even lower in some cases. So thumbs up all around. So they're trending in the right direction. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We got an update yesterday on the city's latest sewage leak. And what we've heard, and we heard this yesterday with the director of of water, Nick Winters, that there could be more improper sewer connections in Hamilton that is causing sewage to leak into the harbor. The issue is, city officials can't say for sure how many there could be 
and where they are. CHML's Lisa Pileski spoke with Shane McCauley yesterday. Uh, Shane is the Director of Water and Wastewater Operations with the City of Hamilton. Just wondering if you can tell me um, what's being done today and you know what workers discovered on the weekend uh, in this particular section of the city. Sure. So on Saturday, uh, our staff wrote as part of our proactive inspection program uh, that we initiated based on the spill that took place in November. Uh, we're doing inspections in the area uh, looking for uh, potential issues. Uh, staff noticed what they thought or what appeared to be uh, a single uh, home cross connection uh, into a, a storm sewer. Um, as of uh, yesterday, Monday, uh, we were able to video that storm sewer and confirm that actually the whole Rutherford Street on the north side was connected into that storm sewer. Um, so uh, right away, uh, we uh, notified uh, the ministry that we had a spill. We uh, mobilized our vac truck uh, to come and um, divert the, the sewage to suck it out so that we were no longer contributing to that spill while we did our investigation, trying to figure out what happened and what's the potential fix uh, for that sewer. So that's what the folks are doing here today. Uh, they're continuing to just uh, suck out the sewage as it uh, is discharged and uh, divert it from going out to our harbour. And so we don't know yet how much sewage has been going on because the, uh, it was uh, mentioned that it, this has been in place since 1996. So just wondering if you can comment on what we know so far and what we've yet to learn. Yeah, uh, so we know that there's 11 homes that are connected to this. Uh, we haven't uh, been able to complete the calculation yet on how much sewage that uh, means uh, for uh, that went out into the harbour, but we're working on that. We will share that as soon as, as soon as we get that number. And in terms of other connect or misconnections that might exist in the city, do you know how many there might be or, or what the process would be to find more? Uh, we don't know. Uh, and that's what we're doing. That's part of this whole proactive inspection program. It's part of the pilot to try and understand the extent, uh, what's involved, learn some lessons as we go through the, the process uh, to inform our inspection programs further to, to, to identify these and uh, stop them. And in terms of this cleanup process, how long will this be uh, affecting residents in the area? So we're hoping uh, in the next uh, few days that we will have a fix in place. Uh, so uh, hoping to start repairs in the next couple of days, depending on the extent of the repairs, that could take a couple of days. So hopefully by the weekend, um, we'll, be, we'll be done here, if all goes well. Okay. And um, just wondering in terms of, you know, you mentioned that it's, it doesn't impact drinking water. So just wondering about the actual impact that this may have. Do you have any idea? Uh, so the impact this would have is we had uh, raw sewage from these 11 homes that eventually would make it out to the harbour. So uh, that, that really is the impact. And you're working with the Ministry of the Environment as well on this? Yes, yeah, so the spill has been reported to the Ministry. Uh, I understand the Ministry was here doing their inspection earlier today. Uh, so we will be working with them on it. Now as CHML's Lisa Pileski in discussion with Shane McCauley, Hamilton's Director of Water and Wastewater Operations. We had yesterday on Good Morning Hamilton, uh, Hamilton's Director of Water, Nick Winters, who seemed hopeful that this pilot project of inspection would hopefully soon become a permanent plan to uncover more of these kinds of issues, which he says there, there's got to be. It's, it's bound to happen again. Uh, we had a leak that was discovered in November. Of course, we all recall the Coots Paradise sewage leak with 24 billion liters of untreated sewage spilled 
into Coots Paradise, and that was over a four-year period. Um, so let's just hope that we find these other leaks because they're out there very quickly. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Bank CEOs are warning that thousands upon thousands of homeowners in this country could default on their mortgages due to rising interest rates. For instance, Scotiabank's incoming CEO has said about 20,000 of the bank's borrowers could be vulnerable. That's pretty scary. Paul Anachuk is Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions and joins me now on Good Morning Hamilton. Paul, good morning. Good morning, Rick. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be on your show. So this is certainly uh, uncertain times economically and an interesting article out this week, according to CEOs of the country's largest banks, tens of thousands of borrowers in this country could be vulnerable to defaulting on their mortgages as rates continue to go up and up. And with another rate announcement scheduled for later this month, how concerned should we be? Rick, we should be very concerned. We know Canadians are struggling financially. This announcement by the various CEOs of the country's biggest banks are just the latest amongst the many warning signs uh, pointing to the fact that Canadians are reaching their financial tipping point, nearing their financial edge. Now, just, you know, stop for a second and think about it. The country's you know, most profitable institutions, the CEOs are now, you know, warning Canadians saying it's happening. But really, in reality, we've been talking about it for months. All the signs have been pointing to this for some time. Consumers have been struggling with their affordability, rising debt, high inflation for months. And we're really starting to see the impact now. You know, if we just think about the last couple of months and, and the shows that we've talked about, you know, household debt has reached a record level. It's at 1.83%, which means for every dollar Canadians earn, they owe $1.83 in debt. Aquifax has been pointing to that consumer debt continues to climb. It actually increased 7.3% to $2.36 trillion. Yes, that's trillion dollars. And what we're seeing is that Canadians are still turning to uh, debt and to cover their costs. We're seeing new credit cards increase as well. There's been a 37.4% increase in new credit going into the business. Credit cards being issued, 1.5 new million in credit cards issued. Spending's at an all-time high. So we can see the demand is there, but at the same time, you know, Canadians are struggling. This interest rates are happening. Uh, the inflation, you know, people don't know where to turn to right now. We talk about mortgages, you know, but people are, who are defaulting on mortgages are in really a tough spot right now because the rental market, we hear it in the news every day. You know, people who are looking for even rentals in Hamilton are getting outpriced. They cannot afford to live anywhere. Uh, you know, personally, I, I would be concerned about what's happening. I've seen the, the homelessness here in Hamilton. I've seen the food banks. From my standpoint, who deals with people in financial difficulty, we're seeing the del delinquencies rise in non-mortgage, but we're also now hearing the CEO saying it's coming. And the rate hike is coming in uh, later this month. we got a, a couple minutes to talk about options. What advice do you have for listeners, especially those who are struggling to make ends meet now and with potentially more rates on, on the way, or maybe their, their, their uh, closed mortgage is going to open up again for renewal and they're near the tipping point? What advice do you have for them? 
Well, first of all, don't lose any sleep over this, you know, because there are always options that are available. If you've been losing sleep, I'm going to tell you there is options. And I don't want those that are listening to the news to worry because it's not all doom and gloom out there. Now is the perfect time to take a look at your financial situation. It's January. It's a new year. It's time to turn a new leaf. You know what? If you have a budget, now's the time to take a look at it. Now's the time to start taking a plan for the upcoming year. If you don't have a budget, that's fine because almost half of Canadians don't have a budget. Now is the time to take a look at one and build one because a budget can help you free up some funds. Free up some funds that can go paying back some debt. Free up some funds that can go to an emergency fund or free up some funds that, you know what, uh, allow you to uh, live a little bit more that maybe you've been hiding for the last couple of years. Also take a look at your current debt levels. Are you managing? Are you keeping up? You know, there is still a lot of availability of credit out there. So if you're paying high interest rates, take a look at what options you have that you can lower your interest rates. For example, if you have equity still in your home, take a look at refinancing why the mortgage rates are, are still low. Yes, we're predicting they're going to increase. But as of today, they are still fairly low. Yes, they've increased for the last uh, year. But again, we're still seeing low interest rates. And you know what? Even a, a debt at 7% is better than you paying credit card debt at 19%. Absolutely. You can get uh, a lot more information, some budget uh, help as well, online at bdodebt.ca. Paul, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Rick. It's always a pleasure. That's Paul Anacek, Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Unequivocally, we won't touch the green belt. Uh, unlike other governments that don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear. People don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. We'll figure out uh, how to clean up this housing mess and this housing crisis that we're facing in a different fashion. But all my friends... I listen to you. You don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. Well, as we know by now, welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The provincial government did not find another option to build more homes, to construct more affordable housing. At least that's their vision, and uh, they've done so, or at least planning to do so, by opening up green belt lands for developers. Developers already scooping up these properties and are now working towards constructing homes slowly but surely on these lands or are they now let's press the brakes here a little bit because environmental defense is alleging that the provincial government broke the law when it forced the city of hamilton to expand its urban boundary into the greenbelt land area into the el frida area EcoJustice, on behalf of Environmental Defense, filing a notice of application for a judicial review to look into this. Here to give us some information is Phil Pothin, Ontario Environment Program Manager with Environmental Defense. Phil, good morning. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, before we kind of go any further, I did kind of want to step back and clarify that uh, the province's decision to overturn Hamilton's official plan and force boundary expansion is actually separate from uh, their decision to strip protection from parts of the Greenbelt. Uh, and the judicial review refers to the expansion of the boundary to eat up all of Hamilton's contested countryside, as it's called. So this is land that was off limits for development, but it was not in the Greenbelt. Nobody, not the most aggressive of the developers, nobody thought it was even 
possibly on the table that any land would ever be taken out of the green belt because that was always the express promise of the government that they would never touch the green belt uh and and that was true throughout the planning process so so this is separate and the government has sort of strategically bundled together all of these awful and fishy decisions at once uh, in hopes of getting this sort of bulk discount where we think they're all the same but they're actually multiple really bad decisions and the one that is the subject of the judicial review is the rest of the boundary expansion because hamilton demonstrated it did not need so much as an extra square foot of designated greenfield area because there was so much available already and because so many neighborhoods in hamilton actually need a lot more homes added to those existing neighborhoods in order to support the infrastructure and fill the schools that they already have. They need it in order to fund it, to make it viable. And so, Phil, is Hamilton the only city in the province in which the government has said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to alter your planning act or alter your plan here? No, actually, it's interesting. Uh, Hamilton is, you know, a very clear and obviously an easy case for us to pick because, you know, it's a poster child for a municipality that got it right and the government was imposing a plan that was so much worse. Uh, But even in municipalities that gave in to the government's behind the scenes arm twisting to breach the law and extend uh, the boundary more than necessary, the government still went ahead and imposed more boundary expansion even beyond what those councils agreed to. So uh, it's not the only one, but Hamilton, because we're a, you know, we're a charity, we're a a non, you know, an NGO that has limited funds. We're not developers, you know, with uh, billions to make from this decision. We had to pick one and Hamilton was obviously a, a very good example. There was so much public support for doing things the right way. It was such uh, a step forward that we thought we would pick Hamilton as the one to hang on. And the case is so clear. There was no need for a boundary expansion in Hamilton. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Phil Pothan, Ontario Environment Program Manager with Environmental Defense. Let's get into this judicial review. How does it work? What is it going to look like? Well, you know, a judicial review, it's not the same as a planning appeal where you just have to show that you're right and the other side or the government was wrong. Uh, you know, the, uh, those appeals, you know, it, it's essentially they're allowed to consider all new evidence. They're allowed to, and, and as long as you can show that you are more right than the province, you can succeed. In, for these judicial reviews, we actually have an extremely high standard. It's not enough to show that the government was wrong. You have to show that they were so wrong that they so to such an extent disregarded the factors that they needed to consider that they actually were unreasonable and this is a very high standard to meet but the 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 circumstances here are so egregious that we think even within with that very high standard it's worth pursuing a judicial review the government disregarded the clear indication from hamilton staff that they did not need the boundary expansion that it was imposing and and that the law actually prohibits Hamilton or the minister from extending the settlement boundary more than necessary. So Hamilton said it wasn't necessary. The evidence showed it wasn't necessary. And yet the provincial government broke the law, in our view, by going ahead and doing it anyway, contrary to the black and white wording 
of its own provincial policy statement and its own growth plan for the Greater Golden Horseshoe, which said you can't extend the settlement boundary when you have alternative ways of meeting the housing need. And Hamilton embraced those. As disappointing as the situation we're in, we only have about a minute to talk about this, this whole plan that the province has implemented to build more housing, there's really no guarantee that it's going to be affordable housing at all, really. Yeah, no, it, it, there's certainly no guarantee that it'll be affordable. Pushing it, uh, housing, what this is, is displacing housing. Because the government actually took away provisions in the Hamilton official plan, which would designed to deliver housing in existing neighborhoods, in places where they can be built at lower costs using existing infrastructure, and pushed it out into places where whole new infrastructure would have to be built, where housing will be much, much more expensive. And beyond that, because we have a constrained supply of construction resources, building equipment, labor, every one of these homes means that fewer homes overall are going to be built because there's a constraint. We're, we're basically using the same amount of resources. We can't increase those to build larger, more resource intensive homes. And that means fewer homes overall, not more. Yeah, I'm in total agreement. Phil, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for explaining uh, this judicial review. Good luck with it. Thank you. Phil Pothin is the Ontario Environment Program Manager with Environmental Defence. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Yeah, provincial government, leave Hamilton's planning act alone. We're doing an okay job, are we not? We had a good plan. Now it's been torn up by the Premier and the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing. Nope, not good enough. Uh, we want to expand the urban boundary, even though thousands of people, an overwhelmingly uh, huge supportive uh, group of people said, no, just l- we're not going to expand the urban boundary. We have enough space in this city to build where the infrastructure is already there. It's going to be upgraded anyways. It needs to be upgraded in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Let's build homes on those spaces, improve the infrastructure, and away we go. Nope. And so there is yet another protest over Bill 23, as it's called. It's the More Homes Built Faster Act. Sounds good. This protest is set for Saturday outside Conservative MPP Sam Oosterhoff's New Year's levy. Here to talk about it is Liz Benyon, Chair of the Biodiversity and Climate Action Niagara. Liz, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hello, Liz. Do we have you? Yes, good morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. What is planned this weekend? So we're having our fifth protest against uh, Bill 39 and Bill 23 and all the other horrible things that the Ford government has been doing lately. Um, We're we're holding it outside of the Legion in Font Hill from 1.30 to 3.30. We want to make it very clear to the Ford government that they need to live up to their promise that they made to protect the Green Belt and that they actually need to address the real housing crisis, which we do have, which is the affordable housing crisis. And building more McMansions on Greenbelt and other Greenfield lands is not going to solve that problem. Liz, you and I both know that this government has not been listening, is not listening. How frustrated at you that it's been a one-way communication? Well, it is very frustrating, but what citizens have to do is be persistent. We cannot let them uh, get away with it. And in fact, there's a lot of things going on that give me some hope. So it was good to hear that the OPP have opened uh, 
the anti-rackets branch has opened an investigation. Well, not an investigation. They're looking to see whether they need to have an investigation about some of the land deals that have gone on. You know, it's very concerning that the government said they were going to protect the green belt. And yet developers have been buying up this protected land, especially developers with ties to the uh, PC government. And then suddenly the government says, oh, these lands are going to be removed from the green belt. It's um, it sounds like insider trading to a lot of people. Sounds like it. Absolutely. We also just got done speaking with Phil Pothin from Environmental Defense, and they're issuing through EcoJustice a judicial review of the province's move to really tear up Hamilton's official uh, plan for growth in this community. And uh, who knows what that's going to turn out. But you've also made written submissions to the Environmental Registry. Have you received any kind of response? So the Environmental Registry has reported back on, in general, all the responses that they've uh, received. And overwhelmingly, and not surprisingly, people are very much against the Greenbelt land removals, uh, the various aspects of the Omnibus Bill, uh, Bill 23, which did all kinds of things. It, it's, its impact is going to be huge on the average resident. So it's going to take away the municipality's uh, ability to collect development charges, which means those costs are going to fall on existing homeowners. And we've always been of the belief that growth should pay for growth, but now existing taxpayers are going to have to pick up the slack that developers are no longer going to have to pay for. That's just wrong. Uh, People are also very much against the strong mayor's powers, which uh, the government has given to some mayors, which allows them to overrule their elected council with a minority of councillors. That's undemocratic. And you know, in Hamilton's case, and in so many other municipalities cases, we just went through an official plan process. These cities just created good plans that allowed for smart growth within their existing urban boundaries that would accommodate the growth that we expect for the next 30 years. For the governments to just go and rip up all those plans, those good plans to make better use of our existing uh, municipalities, their infrastructure, their services, just rip them up and say you have to expand it it's just wrong it's ridiculous it makes me think what are we paying all these municipal officials for if the province is just going to do what they want to do i mean it's it's completely backwards It, it is absolutely backwards and it was done with no transparency it was done with no consultation in fact some of the consultation periods for some of these changes were still going on when the government enacted the pieces of legislation So it just shows the disdain that this government has for the people. They don't care what we think. Um, And the only thing we can do is continue to put pressure on the elected MPPs, because we have to assume that some of these people would like to be (laughs) reelected. And so so they need to know that this is a hugely unpopular move. And they also need to know that people understand what this means, that picking away these pieces from the green belt which uh, happens in related legislation to Bill 23, taking those lands out of the green belt is just the beginning. They've told us they're coming after conservation lands next. They've told conservation authorities to prepare uh, lists of their properties that could potentially be sold off. Do people want conservation lands sold off? Do people want to see the green belt, which feeds us, and which provides us with places to recreate and which employs 180,000 people, which has uh, almost 8,000 farms. Do they really want to see that 
that provides clean water to millions of people, do they really want to see that broken up and paved over? Yeah, that's a big fat no. Liz, we got to run, but I want to remind our listeners that the protest goes this Saturday, 1.30 to 3.30 in front of the Royal Canadian Legion branch in Font Hill. Uh, best of luck with it. Thank you so much. Liz Benyon is the chair of the Biodiversity and Climate Action Niagara. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The mental health of children and young adults has been you know, impacted quite obviously throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, even really before that, to be honest, when you consider the influence of social media. With that in mind, there's a school district in the United States, uh, Seattle, Washington, to be exact, that is taking action. Seattle Public Schools, which has about 50,000 students in more than 100 schools, has become the first school district in America to launch a lawsuit against the monoliths of social media. TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Uh, Joining us to discuss this is Dr. Steve Jordans, psychology professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Jordans, good morning. How are you? I'm, I'm fine, Rick. Great to be with you. What do you make of the story? Um, I, I think it's kind of interesting and cool. I mean, I think a lot of people have felt uh, powerless to, to do anything about the situation. And, and we do know there are clear negative impacts on, on children's mental health. So, I mean, I think this is a little out of the box. Uh, maybe not so much in America. <laughs> maybe it's more in the box in America. But this idea of, of yeah, really going for legal liability and if nothing else is a way of getting this issue discussed, I think it's great. Um, but, you know, we've seen in the past with smoking industry and with other industries that, that it's really the legal processes that ultimately give us some control over the negative harm. The school district alleges that social media companies are responsible for worsening the mental health of students and inciting cyber bullying. We've certainly seen examples of that over the years. Mm -hmm. um, we really heard that from Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen back in 2021. She said that Instagram was basically negative, negatively affecting teenagers and, and doing so, choosing profit over protecting our kids. Mm -hmm. um, there are certainly some positives with social media, but the yep. negative impact is tangible. We're, we're seeing it, especially for very influential young children. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the targeting algorithms that they use to push content towards um, children who, you know, just do something as innocently as look at, at at a post in a little more detail, and that can suddenly open a floodgate to, of other things that, you know, and a lot of these posts that get the most attention are negative. Um, that's just the way our brain works. We have our we have something called the amygdala that's constantly on the lookout for threatening or dangerous or you know scary stuff. Uh, and so when we when we see something warning us about something or whatnot, it's pretty for a young child. It's it's pretty natural for them to look at it a little more, and and that can bring them yeah this whole flood of related content. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Steve Jordan, psychology professor at the University of Toronto. We are discussing a story out of Seattle, which the school district there is launching a lawsuit against some of the social media giants over the impact, mental health-wise, it has had on children. Now, uh, aside from trying to assign some accountability, the lawsuit is aiming to implement resources as well, like counseling services for students. I is that at least being done in this country? Um, you know, I, I think so many of us just kind of accept the negatives of social media, but I don't know how much is proactively being done to kind of connect and, and help students who, who run into this. And some of the impacts, by the way, are also, 
like my, my biggest worry with social media in, in the, the world I live in is what it's doing to our children's ability to communicate in real time, face to face ways. You know, the kinds of things that get you a job in an interview uh, where you have to be able to read nonverbal interaction and, and respond well on the fly. So much of what our, our children do so when they grow up, all their social interactions are asynchronous. They don't include the nonverbals. They don't actually get to see the reactions that, that the other person is having. And then they get to university and we have an epidemic of social anxiety. Um, they find it you know, really difficult to talk to a stranger. Uh, and that's where all the opportunities in life and such come from. So some of these, some of these dangers are a little more deep um, than they may seem. And I think it, it is worth a good accounting of you know, what's going on here and how can we try to police it a little bit better. I'm not sure if it's gray area, but how do you measure um, the mental health of a child now compared to, let's just say, for, for sake of argument, 10 years ago? How, how is that measurable, especially in the court of law? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it is it is difficult, but some of these cases, you know, where they literally show what the algorithms do. And there was a couple of examples I remember hearing where somebody, you know, created an account as though they were a 12 year old girl and did something innocent, like click on this or that, and then just said, here's what happens as a result. You know, those sorts of things you can you can show and you can say, look, you are pushing content to this person. And, you know, we know from psychology, there's something called the mere exposure effect that once any of us hear some bit of information multiple times, especially from multiple sources, we just start to believe it's true. Uh, and especially with children who are, have not developed their critical thinking skills very well yet, it's just a really dangerous kind of situation to put them in. And, and so I think you can show the danger in different ways. Um, but you're right, you know, kind of doing a three year ago versus now, uh, there are surveys, we could look at some of those surveys. Um, but it's hard to nail down even social media because we have had things like a pandemic, a borderline nuclear war, <laughs> climate crisis. You know, we're all living through a pretty tricky time right now. We got another minute. Uh, I'm going to guess that you know social media companies are going to say, "Look, it's parents who have fallen down. They should take some of this responsibility." And I'm not sure how that that would play out in court, but you mm -hmm. know, there's probably a little bit of truth to that that we don't do enough as parents to talk with our kids about the ills of social media. So, how should a parent engage in this conversation? Yeah. Um, so, so I think that's certainly you know a good idea for for parents to to do that kind of stuff. I also think some of the mechanisms they're using to engage the children are very primitive and very basic, and and the adults might not even understand them very well. For example, the use of emotionality to kind of trigger somebody to want to do something, uh, and that makes them want to share or like or or something like that a post, and that's what starts the whole snowball rolling. So I'm not always sure parents are really well equipped to truly understand the dangers that are going on there, uh, but certainly. They should, you know, ease students into it. I think all of these algorithms just shouldn't work until a student is like 15 or something like that. They, they should just, you know, not be pushed stuff because of the danger. But um, ah, it's hard. I, I would love to tell parents, well, if you just do this, your, your child will be insulated. But, you know, they have their phones in their hand constantly. It's their preferred mode of interacting. And just even the sort of healthy interactions 
are not healthy. <laughs> so, you know, as I described to you before, the way communication is happening in these in these devices is not preparing our kids for the way communication happens in the, when they're outside of, you know, their, their sort of social media group. Uh, and so there's a lot to worry about, and it's a hard task to make sure how we can, you know, make them as safe as we wish. Certainly feel for all the kids who have been impacted negatively by social media, that is for sure. Dr. Jordans, thank you for your time today and uh, sharing your thoughts on this topic. Fantastic, Rick. Thank you very much. Steve Jordan's professor of psychology at the U of T. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.